This is Gesher, the podcast that's bridging the gap between the Jewish and evangelical Christian communities with conversations that matter. Here's your host, Ty Perry, with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. My guest today is Dr. Paul Weaver, an associate professor of Bible exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary. Prior to his current role, Dr. Weaver was the academic dean of the Word of Life Global Bible Institute. He has also served overseas as professor of Bible and theology at the Word of Life Hungry Bible Institute. He also hosts two podcasts, Faith Affirming Findings and Bible and Theology Matters, and he's here today to talk about archaeology and the Bible. Dr. Weaver, welcome to the Gesher Podcast. Well, thank you, Ty, for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to be on your podcast, and I'm certainly looking forward to our conversation today. And let me just add, I'm a big fan of Friends of Israel and appreciate what you all are doing uh, for for the glory of God and to uh, serve the Jewish people. Well, thank you. Thank you. I know you're a, you're a friend of ours. We're a friend of uh, Word of Life in Dallas, so glad to uh, be talking with you today. Dr. Weaver, one of your podcasts uh, focuses on archaeological discoveries. That's faith-affirming findings. And these are discoveries, uh, as you say in the name, that affirm the biblical accounts that we read in Scripture. I want to get to some of those biblical accounts and those finds, but I want to begin by asking you, what prompted you to start that particular podcast? Well, thank you for that question. I, first of all, I would say I have always enjoyed archaeology as a discipline of study. Uh, when I was in my PhD program at Baptist Bible Seminary, I, I took a PhD course on archaeology. And uh, at the point where I had to decide a dissertation, what I was going to write on, I decided to write on the archaeology of Corinth. And, it, and its relationship or helps us to understand the book of First Corinthians. So, uh, so it's always been a great interest of mine when we study the historical background and culture of the Bible. It really brings the Bible to life. Uh, HD, if you will, or what HD four or five or whatever is the highest level at this these days. Um, and there's no better source um, as far as the background and history of the Bible than the archaeological records. So that's one reason. A second reason, it's just incredibly faith-affirming, right? And that's, of course, why I use that term faith-affirming findings as the name of my podcast, because it really strengthens our faith in the historicity of Scripture, the archaeological record when honestly interpreted time and time again affirms what you and I already know to be true, that the Bible is historically reliable and worthy of our careful study. In fact, one of my favorite quotes on the subject is from Nelson Gluck, the famous biblical archaeologist who, you know, was a rabbi in, uh, uh, raised in Ohio, I believe, who was a pre president of Hebrew Union College and founder of the Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem. He wrote about biblical archaeology as it relates to the Old Testament, and he wrote these words. Now I'm quoting. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions have often led to amazing discoveries. So, you know, there's a magazine called the 
um, the Bible and the spade, because you can literally take your Bible and read the historical events and take your shovel if if you have the permission by the Israel antiquity authorities to go and dig and find uh, remains that affirm the biblical historicity of the scripture. So uh, that's a second reason. And then thirdly, I would say I wanted to start this podcast because I know that archaeology is very intimidating um, to biblical scholars, let alone the average Christian or average Jewish person. So uh, through the podcast, I hope to help introduce Christians and uh, listeners, any listener alike, uh, to this incredible field and to highlight some of the most important discoveries that pertain to the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament. And I hope that this podcast encourages pastors, teachers, missionaries, and lay people in the local church to begin their own journey investigating the incredible discoveries that are within our reach that uh, have not been accessible to millions of Christians in previous generations. Well, you know, when we're talking about biblical archaeology, you know, listening to your podcasts, I'm going to reference here, you recently wrote an article called Biblical Archaeology, Faith-Affirming Findings in the Baptist Bulletin. And as I'm reading this, I'm realizing archaeology, biblical archaeology, it's uh, fascinating. It should be for the believer um, and for the non-believer. But there's there's something else that it's often used for. It's necessary because we have skeptics. Can you explain a little bit about the nature of biblical skepticism? Like, where does this come from? Why would there be people who would say, you know, I'm not going to, I don't really believe the text of the scripture is is true. Would you say it's, I guess at the end of the day, is it uh, typically rooted in an absence of evidence or is it rooted in the presence of evidence that runs contrary to scripture? How would you talk about skepticism in that way? Yeah, I think you make a very important point. Um, and I'm going to allude to two different categories, some that call them, we might regard um, we might regard as minimalists and those we might regard regard as maximalists. And I'll get to those terms, but I do think the issue of skepticism, uh, we do have to uh, address it and discuss it because a skeptic does not come to the text of scripture in the same way that a, a Jewish individual that believes the Old Testament is historically reliable or a Christian that believes the Old and that the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament is historically reliable. So a skeptic does not believe, usually uh, someone that comes to the Bible as a skeptic usually don't doesn't believe in the supernatural. Uh, they may not even believe in God. Uh, they are usually naturalists. Uh, they would say that only uh, that which can be proven by the scientific method, processes, that which the mind can logically explain, that only that can be true. And therefore, miracles cannot happen. And as you know, the Bible is just packed full of miracles. Uh, therefore, all of those miracles must simply be disregarded uh, or discarded as simply legendary additions and not actual historical events. So this would include the flood the parting of the Red Sea, uh, manna falling from heaven, the supernatural destruction of Jericho, uh, all the prophecy, uh, such as the rise and fall of empires in the book of Daniel, the signs performed by Jesus, the resurrection of Christ, and the list goes on. So um, because they don't believe in the supernatural, they, these skeptics, and since the Bible is full of the supernatural, uh, as you can imagine, not only do they disregard the supernatural events recorded in it, but 
uh, a great deal of the text itself. And so they will only accept as historical events recorded in the Bible that are also confirmed by extra biblical or sources outside of the Bible, such as the classical writers or uh, archaeology. So that's where archaeology comes in, because uh, this is something we both agree uh, can accept as being historically reliable. And as we study archaeology, we see that archaeology affirms the historicity of scripture time and time again. So I would say they apply, these skeptics apply a standard to the Bible that they don't apply to other ancient historiography. So when they come across an ancient writer that might say something different than the biblical text, they would automatically assume that the biblical text is wrong and the classical writer is right. And uh, that's, of course, we learned that Tacitus uh, was wrong when he called um, Pontius Pilate a pre, uh, procurator when he was actually a prefect. So, so we might say it this way, the Bible is guilty until proven otherwise right? In, from their perspective. The Bible is guilty of inaccuracy until proven accurate. And on the other hand, there are those of us who are maximalists. Uh, we believe that the Bible is a historically reliable document, and, and time and time again, it's proven itself to be. So it's not just blind faith, uh, but many of us maximalists are also inerrantists. Right? We believe that the Bible is uh, does not include errors in the original manuscripts. And so we believe that an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, as you alluded to here. Let me say that again. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. In other words, just because there's no archaeological evidence for Belshazzar, for example, does not mean that Belshazzar never existed. And you know why I use this as an example, because uh, the claims of minimalists of the past at one time was that Belshazzar was just a figment of the Hebrew people's imaginations. He was just a fictitious character. And the discovery of two different archaeological artifacts, the Nabonidus Chronicle and the Nabonidus Cylinder, proved them wrong and proved the Bible right, because Nabonidus was the father of of uh, Belshazzar, and he was in Arabia and put Belshazzar in charge. Well, both of those archaeological artifacts name Belshazzar. And so the nature of ancient documents, civilizations, uh, papyri, all of this deteriorates. That's the nature of, of, of events under natural processes. And so it's not surprising that the further back in time we go, the harder it is the harder it is to find archaeological data for any civilization, uh, any events, not just biblical people or groups, but all people and groups and, and documentation. So the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence um, just because we don't have something to prove uh, the events described in the Bible yet, and the keyword yet, uh, if we dig long enough, we probably will find it. Well, the other the other obstacle that it seems, uh, and you allude to that you actually write about this in your article in the Baptist Bulletin, is that prior to 1948, there were limitations on what could be done, what could as in terms of archaeology in the Holy Land. I don't like to necessarily call it Palestine, but that's what it was called at the time. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Why? What happened in 1948 that 
essentially open the floodgates to biblical archaeology. Well, I'm sure many of your well-informed listeners know that 1948 is a crucial event in human history uh, as it relates especially to the nation of Israel, because that's when the nation of Israel was officially established again, right, uh, in the land of Israel. So Israel became the first democratic country in the Middle East, and that ushered in a a stability that had previously been unknown in that region. So a land that was previously unsafe to excavate in became a place where excavations were not only safe and allowed, but also highly encouraged, right? And so um, many, many discoveries were found since then that have affirmed the biblical record. And so uh, the last 70 plus years have been incredible as it relates to discovery after discovery uh, that affirm the biblical record. Dr. Weaver, I want to move on to the question of what role should archaeology play in a person's uh, trust or reliability in the scriptures? And the reason I ask this is because I'll talk to believers, sometimes Christians, who will say things like, hey, did you hear about the most recent find in Israel? You know, it, it confirms what the Bible says or it proves what the Bible says. Is, is that a proper role? Should we be looking at archaeology as a way to prove the Bible or is there something else? Yeah, so I think it's important to recognize that before 1948, um, millions of Christians lived without the archaeological record that we have access to now. And uh, they took by faith what we uh, also take by faith, but it, certainly it's nice to have the archaeological artifacts and discoveries, the places uh, that affirm what we uh, believe to be true. Um, but all that to say, we don't need archaeology. Um, previous generations didn't have access to it, but I'm thankful for it. Uh, I usually use the word affirm, not confirm or prove. And I think your question alludes to that. It's intentional. Um, I think it's more than semantics. Uh, the Bible does not need confirmation. Right? The Bible stands on its own. Um, um, again, many, many Jewish individuals and Christians have accepted it as true um, without all the archaeological data that we have now. Whether we have it or not doesn't determine whether the Bible is true. The record is reliable whether or not we have archaeology. And so, in, at least in my mind, confirmation has more the idea of uncertainty of whether something is true or not, and extra biblical evidence then confirms it to be true or not. Whereas I see archaeology affirming, not confirming, but affirming something we already know to be true. Archaeology supports it. It doesn't prove it. Well, let's discuss some of the finds that you've highlighted uh, on your program and in your article. Uh, the first I wanted to, to bring up is the crucifixion heel. Back in 2012, it was my first trip to Israel, and uh, we were at the Israel Museum, and I saw this, and I didn't have much information on it or context, and you really helped put some context on this. Uh, so tell us about the crucifixion heel and its significance. Yeah, it's a fascinating find, isn't it? Uh, we do call it the crucifixion heel. It was discovered in 1968. Uh, it was dated to the first century, and it was discovered in an ossuary. And an ossuary is simply a bone box, and ossuaries contain the bones of dead people, right? And this particular ossuary contained the remains of a man by the name of Yehohanan. 
during a small window of time, we know it's first century uh, AD through AD 70. It's a small window of time that this method of a second burial process took place where uh, the Jewish people employed this process where um, someone would be, if someone died, they would be put on a, a stone bench in, in a tomb, much like the biblical description of Jesus, right? He was placed on a, a flat stone bench. Um, this was the first burial, but approximately a year later, after the flesh uh, has decomposed and decayed and come off the bones, the loved ones of the dead individual would return to the grave. They'd collect the bones of the dead individual and then put them in an ossuary. Uh, many ossuaries have been discovered from the first century AD, uh, including the ossuary of Caiaphas, which I think we're going to talk about here in a little bit as well. And so um, what is particularly significant and interesting about Yehohanan's ossuary is that the remains of him found in his bone box or his ossuary uh, indicate that he was crucified. And we know this because, as you indicate, uh, there was still a nail embedded in his heel bone. And so apparently as the nail was violently pounded through Yehohanan's heel and then into the side of a wooden beam, the nail hit a knot in the wood and it curled up. And so if you go into the Israel Museum, you can see a um, uh, not the original, but because that's somewhere else, but uh, you can see a recreation of it and it's and it's curled up because it hit this knot in the um, in the wood. And probably that's why it's still in the heel. Right? Otherwise, they would have pulled it out entirely and reused it in another crucifixion. Um, but I'm thankful uh, that it did hit that knot because it provided us with some great um, affirmation that uh, crucifixions did take place with uh, nails. And so um, what is also significant about this discovery is that both legs of Yehohanan were badly broken, um, which was done to speed up the death process. Right? It would ensure that the crucified victim uh, would die quicker, that he could no longer thrust himself up with his legs uh, to gasp for air, and so he would die of asphyxiation. So it'd be quicker than if he didn't, if his legs weren't broken. And so you might recall that in the biblical account uh, of Jesus' crucifixion, the soldiers broke the bones of the criminals on either side of Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. And so there was no one who, so they didn't need to break Jesus' bones. And of course, this fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, didn't it? And Psalm 3420, that says not one of his bones were broken. And then also when speaking of the Hebrew Bible, the Passover lamb, which was the spotless lamb, which was clearly, we understand this to be a type pointing us towards the, the spotless lamb, the person of Jesus Christ. In Exodus 12, 46 and Numbers 9, 12, the spotless lamb's bones were not to be broken. And so over the years, there have been skeptics who have argued that uh, against the biblical account of the crucifixion of Jesus, the gospel writers could not have been more clear that Jesus was nailed to a cross. And of course, doubting Thomas um, in John 20, 24 said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, I will not believe it. Um, then when Jesus appears to Thomas, Jesus says to him, put your finger here, see my hands, stop doubting and believe. So, uh, so nails were used of crucified victims. 
opposed to what some skeptics were saying that um, crucified victims would be tied to the cross. Uh, and so that goes against it. Also, um, it proves that, well, it affirms that um, that they did indeed break legs of crucified victims uh, because Yehohanan's legs were broken. And the final thing is the burial, right? Some skeptics said a crucified victim, this is the most heinous way to die. Uh, embarrassing, not just for him, you know, they'd be put publicly outside the city on a public road where everyone would see them. It was a it was a tool used by Rome to ensure that others would not uh, rebel against the Roman authorities. It was a horrible way to die. But um, some skeptics said, well, they wouldn't allow someone dying of this type of death to receive a normal burial. But the 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 heel of Yehohanan with the with the nail through it affirms that yes, indeed, Jesus would be allowed a proper burial because Yehohanan certainly was. Which is amazing. One one find, one ankle bone, has so much significance to uh, to this question. Well, the, uh, the second thing I wanted to look at um, was the Pontius Pilate inscription. Uh, this is another thing I saw back in uh, in Israel in 2012. Um, my understanding is that for quite a while, skeptics questioned whether Pontius Pilate was a real person or at least was the person portrayed in the scriptures. Is that correct? Uh, there is some of uh, the most critical skeptics, uh, although we've had since maybe 14, 1500s, um, the writings of Tacitus and the writings of Josephus that seem to affirm that Pontius Pilate really did live and that he really did rule over Jesus. But the Pontius Pilate inscription is the first archaeological evidence outside of um, manuscripts that affirms the, these details. And what is the inscription? And I guess, how was it found? What What is it exactly? Yeah, so maybe just a little bit background. Herod, not so great, I like to call him, right? Not, uh, most call him Herod the Great, but he was an evil man, wasn't he? Uh, and when he died, uh, his kingdom was divided amongst three of his sons. One of those sons was just as evil as him and inept in ruling, and he was removed by the Romans. And in place of him were placed prefects and, and uh, a series of prefects. And Pontius Pilate was the prefect in charge of Judea, uh, where the city of Jerusalem was located. Uh, within that region and where Jesus was, you know, of course, in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so Pilate is very important to the historical events surrounding the most important event of human history. Um, and so in 1961, the Pilate inscription was discovered. Um, it's sometimes called the Pilate Stone also. And this inscription is chiseled into limestone and it was discovered at the Amphitheater in Caesarea Maritima. And I'm sure you've been there, Ty. It's, it's an amazing location. In fact, Herod the Not-So-Great built that from nothing. It was nothing before he came. And he, of course, wanted to make a name for himself. And he built this whole city from zero. And he lived there. And, and future prefects, like Pontius Pilate, lived there for the vast majority of the year, but only would go to Jerusalem when he had to. But the Pilate Stone um, was an inscription dated around 30 BC. And when this stone was 
discovered it was part of the steps of the Roman amphitheater. And this was its what we call the secondary usage. Uh, today we talk today we talk about repurposing. I don't know if your wife is good at repurposing. My wife is, uh, but it's very popular to repurpose things. But that was also the case in the first century, but relating to building blocks and stones. And so ancient uh, the ancients would use stones or blocks that were used from previous buildings. And this was the case uh, in the amphitheater. They discovered the Pontius Pilate stone. They believe the stone was originally part of a temple built, built by Pontius Pilate and a temple to worship. As you know, emperors were worshipped then. Emperor Tiberius Caesar Augustus, the one who happened to appoint Pilate as the prefect. So this was a way to get in the good favor with, uh, with the emperor. And this pilot stone, the first line on the stone reads Tiberius, the second line reads Pontius, and the third and fourth line reads Prefect of Judea. And so this is a fascinating discovery that affirms, uh, again, that this individual was alive at the time and ruled over the uh, trial of Jesus. Well, if we're talking about Jesus and the trials and the, the end of his earthly life, uh, one of the other characters that comes into play is Caiaphas, and there's a significant find involving him. Can you talk about the Caiaphas ossuary? Yeah, so Caiaphas, of course, was the high priest uh, over the Sanhedrin. He was the second most powerful man in all of Judea, second to Pontius Pilate, and they really worked together to control the people, you could say. Um, I think this, there's indications that Caiaphas and before him, his father-in-law, Annas, uh, controlled things, but they really bought that power from the Romans. And so um, Caiaphas is also the one that Jesus stood before during the death, during the religious trials, uh, where uh, he actually violated his own laws by tearing his own garments when he said that Jesus blasphemed, right? And so uh, he's also the one that was involved in the arrest of Peter and John and telling them not to uh, preach about Jesus any longer. So this is a very important individual in the accounts, the historical events surrounding the death, um, the trials, death, and uh, and actually even the burial of Jesus when, he, when they tried to station guards to, to keep Jesus in the tomb, which of course was not successful. So the Caiaphas ossuary was discovered in 1990 uh, when a water park was being built in Jerusalem. And, and you, you think uh, we're about to close on a house this month. And uh, in this market, it's crazy that it's cheaper to build a house than buy a 10 to 20 year old house. Anyhow, uh, building projects take a while. Um, but in Israel, building projects can take a lot longer, right? Because there's thousands of years of history under the ground and you can almost anywhere you build you're going to discover something and have to call out the antiquity authorities from israel to investigate it and determine if you can continue building or not well they were building a a water park um, and one of the tractors fell into an ancient burial site a first century burial grave. And in this cave were 12 different ossuaries. Uh, and it was apparent that this grave had been pilfered, had been robbed 
Um, some of the bones were scattered. Many of the ossuaries were broken and smashed pottery thrown around. But fortunately, the southernmost uh, tomb, a southernmost part of the tomb was left untouched. They didn't discover, not by chance, I don't think, but this very ornate design, uh, an ossuary that uh, was very ornate. It was must have been a wealthy person, must have been a very important figure. And the decoration on Ashwari was that uh, was very interesting, uh, but also included two inscriptions. You know, they would buy these bone boxes pre-made. And some of some of them were very simple, others very ornate. And so this one was very ornate; it would have been very expensive. But the last thing that you would do on Ashwari was to scratch in the name of the individual. So you look at this ossuary, you probably saw it in the Israel Museum as well. You look at this ornate ossuary, but then on the side, you see Kayafa on the side. And, and you're like, why so ornate? But then in like chicken scratch, you know, this very simple way. Well, that's what they would do. They would buy them pre-made, but then they would scratch in the name of the, the, the individual inside the ossuary on the side. And so there are two different places, two different sides of this ossuary have the name of Caiaphas on it, um, and also the name Joseph. And um, and so we know the biblical text talks about Caiaphas, but we, we were curious about the name Joseph, but Josephus Flavius, the Jewish historian, um, indicates that Joseph, he writes, Joseph, who was called Caiaphas of the high, of the high priesthood. And so Joseph was his name, which was a very common name at the time, Caiaphas would have been his nickname. So the name Caiaphas would distinguish him from other Josephs of the first century. And so, so there's pretty much a unanimous consensus that this ossuary is indeed the ossuary of this very important, powerful man in the first century uh, Caiaphas. And that was just discovered in 1990. I wasn't born yet, but you know, just a year before, uh, that's a relatively recent discovery that affirms a very ancient, uh, ancient biblical account. It is. And many have listed it among the top 10 most important discoveries of, of biblical archaeology. Well, now we're going to go to the Tanakh, to the Old Testament, uh, find that um, uh, this was another one I've been to. I just love this place. Uh, Tell Dan, uh, we're not we're always sure on what a tell is here in North America. We don't have an equivalent. So tell, tell listeners what a tell is. And, uh, you, you said actually, before you do that, you said that tell Dan is one of your favorite locations in the Holy land. So uh, I'd also want to know what makes it so special to you. Yeah. So tell is T E L. Um, uh, so one L and a tell is a, is simply a, a mound or a hill of dirt. It looks just like a, a, a hill. However, it's not just any old hill. Underneath this mound or underneath this hill of dirt uh, is layers of civilizations. And so those layers need to be excavated. And of course, archaeology is in uh, a science of destruction, right? To get to the you have to go through layers of civilizations to get to whichever layer you're most interested in. Because when one um, civilization, when one people group comes and destroys a city, they build on top of it and they may repurpose some of those stones as we discussed relating to the Pontius Pilate stone. And so you may have many layers of um, that form underneath these hills and, and these tills or these tells form 
when a city or civilization has been abandoned. Uh, if you go to Thessaloniki or Jerusalem, you know, you've got layers of civilization still there, right? And so it's hard to get under them um, because you don't want to destroy people's homes that live on top of it. But in places that have been abandoned, like Colossa, like Dan, um, places where people no longer live, uh, dirt sediment comes in and just fills in around the civilizations, the, around the remains of those former civilizations. So it just forms what looks like a hill, but it's really layers of, of civilizations underneath it. And so to your question, what, why do I like Tel Dan so much? It, it is one of my favorite, probably maybe the favorite place of mine uh, in the land of Israel, because for multiple reasons, one, the history of it, right? The incredible history goes back to uh, before it was called Dan, uh, it was called Laish, right? Um, and it was where Abraham visited to recover and, and save his nephew Lot way back in Genesis 14. So uh, the history goes way back. And so that's one reason I love this location. Also, just so many archaeological discoveries have been uncovered there. And so that's another reason I love this location. And then it's just beautiful. Right? Tel Dan is very fertile and lots of green vegetation. And Ty, as you know, Israel is an amazing place, but not all of Israel is beautiful um, as far as the land goes. Right? Some of it looks like a desert, right? Uh, not the case with Tel Dan, not the case with this area. So those are three great reasons why I like uh, Tel Dan. Uh, I love it too. And, you know, when you're talking about the uh, that site going all the way back to Genesis 14, um, can you give us a, a survey of the history of this place and why was its discovery so important to biblical uh, affirmation? Yeah, so I love, there is a gate there called Abraham's Gate. And the reason it's called Abraham's Gate, because in Genesis 14, Abraham may have actually walked through it. This is one of the oldest Canaanite gates uh, from even before the nation of Israel uh, started to have conquest in the land. And so uh, this gate is nearly 12 feet high, 17 feet wide, uh, made of sun-dried mud brick. Uh, it's believed that the gate was built in the mid-18th century. Uh, it's well-preserved in part because uh, it was filled in. And, and so it, then it had the support and didn't just collapse. It was filled in and a, and it was, a gate was built somewhere else along the wall. So, uh, so it goes way back. And of course, the conquest of the land, the uh, changing of the name to Dan, uh, named after uh, the the ancestor right there, patriarch of the tribe. And so um, very significant. Again, it's mentioned from Dan to Beersheba to indicate really the whole land from the northernmost part, um, from the northernmost part of the frontier to the southernmost part. Well, tell us about the, you mentioned Abraham's gate. Um, I know there's an inscription there. There's some other aspects of this discovery uh, that we want to talk about, but Let's talk first about the discovery initially, and then uh, what's been found there that affirms the biblical account. Yeah, so this is in the region of Upper Galilee. Um, uh, in 1976, Avraham Biran discovered a particular inscription there um, that was 
bilingual. It was in Greek and Aramaic. So this inscription, uh, discovered in 1976, reads, To the God who is in Dan. And so this particular inscription was very important and helpful because it positively identified this city as the city of Dan, which is recorded in scripture uh, many, many times. So that's very significant. Um, Another interesting discovery there is the fortified walls. Those were discovered in 1980, uh, the remains of a massive city, right? City walls 60 feet higher than the surrounding area. And so this is really uh, vast, very large. Um, So it'd be in frontier land, it'd be protecting uh, the the land of Israel. And so it would be significant to have fortified walls in a city that's not, you know, in the center of the country, but really on the uh, outskirts of it from other protection from other uh, nations that might want to attack it. Also, there's also a spring that runs through it. Uh, just as the Bible describes, that we call it the, the Dan Spring, one of four that feed into the Jordan River. It's the biggest, largest of the four. So it's very fertile land as described in the Judges 18. Uh, there's evidence of destruction, uh, just as described in Joshua 19, verse 47, uh, records the conquering of Laish and its renaming. And so the evidence of destru- destruction is mentioned in Uh, by the Israel Ministry of Foreign Affairs on their website. Let me read this. It says, above the destruction level of the last Canaanite city, so the level of the Canaanite civilization, a new occupation level was revealed, very different in architectural character and material culture. And this new settlement pattern represents the conquest and settlement of the city by the tribe of Dan. And and so it's clearly different substance, different style of buildings, which is what you would expect when a new group of people come to a land and conquer it from a former uh, civilization. So there's a discovery of a high place, right? Bema, a high place. And of course, the the pagans, the Canaanites would believe that's the high, that's where you meet the gods. And even the Greeks, right? You think of Mount Olympus, right? The Highest point is where you meet the gods, where you worship them. Well, in Dan, it was discovered uh, a high place, uh, a sanctuary that was built by Jeroboam. And the Canaanites would worship there at these high places. And unfortunately, this is uh, something that Jeroboam and many others of the Jewish kings, Hebrew kings, would have uh, allowed. Um, sometimes they promoted it. Um, uh, and this is the case there. The high place discovered was approximately 60 feet by 62 feet. Um, and in front of the um, this worship center, uh, there's a, a, a platform that archaeologists now think was uh, roofed and uh, where uh, golden calves would have been located and worshipped. Um, of course, the scripture in 1 Kings 12 describes um, the 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 pagan worship centers that were established by Jeroboam the first and um, professor at Liberty University that many of your listeners may be familiar with Randall Price uh, says about it um, or correctly calls this worship center the most dangerous site in the country <laughs> and the reason is because uh, 
it's this type of worship that uh, resulted in in God's uh, discipline of the the Hebrew people. Well, it's a fascinating place. It's a sad place because it does uh, remind us of the the depths to which Israel fell during that period. Uh, but as I think about it, I, I've stood there at the high place, and as you're thinking about uh, the fact that that exists today, it's a monument really not only to the reliability of scripture, but also to the fact that uh, no one worships the gods that the Danites were worshiping at that time, but we continue to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is still uh, the God who reigns. So it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful place and wonderful lessons for us there. Now, I want to move on to one last uh, discovery, and this one I find fascinating. And you quote, uh, and I'm, going to go, I'm going to quote you, but you quote in your article, uh, you're talking about how for a long time there were skeptics who said King David probably was not a king at all. He was just a fictional character. And uh, in your article, uh, quoting um, one, one scholar from the University of Sheffield, he wrote and back in 1994, I'm not the only scholar who suspects that the figure of King David is about as historical as King Arthur. Well, the discovery that you're going to talk about here, this would be the House of David inscription, uh, probably caused this this professor to have to readjust his, his this verdict on King David. Tell us about the House of David inscription. Yeah, you're right. Skeptics have denied that David ever existed. And um, again, they're coming from a worldview that they don't believe in the, the supernatural typically. And so all of the events recorded in the Bible and the supernatural really um, conquering of cities like Jericho and I and others uh, just doesn't fit their paradigm of how natural events take place. And so many have denied David ever existed. And uh, the, the, the House of David uh, discovery, um, this particular stele, um, also called the Tel Dan stele because it was discovered there at Tel Dan. The largest portion of it was discovered in 1993. So again, relatively recent, after you were born, right? You said you were born. <laughs> so Avraham Biran uh, discovered this near the Israeli gate, another gate, not the one we spoke about previously that what we call Abraham's gate, but a second and third fragment was discovered a year later. And so they piece these together, these fragments together and this inscriptions, the inscription um, has been discovered in total and has been pieced together. Uh, I'm sorry, three fragments total. Um, there's some still missing, but three of them have been pieced together. The right side is the largest fragment. And on the left side, there are two additional smaller fragments. So the entire inscription would be approximately 12 inches, 12 and a half inches by 13 and a half inches. It's dated to the ninth century BC. So, um, uh, uh, which fits nicely with the dating of the biblical description of events recorded on it. This would be the first century after David would have reigned, right? Um, so the stele is what's called a victory stele. It was written in Aramaic on a stone slab, and a victory stele was used, utilized by a king to brag about their military conquests, their accomplish accomplishments in battle. And so this stele describes the conquest of Hazael of Aram, an empire north of Israel and north of Judah. On this inscription, Hazael bragged that he killed many kings and thousands of horsemen and thousands of chariots. 
Then on it, he also references Jehoram, son of Ahab, Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, and for, who's from the house of David. And so that's very significant when it speaks of Jehoram from the house of David, uh, because if there's this alludes to the dynasty of David, and if there's a dynasty of David, it means there's a King David. And so this is very uh, important discovery affirming the biblical record that King David existed and a dynasty came from his descendants. All beneath the surface of the land of Israel, uh, we have all these these affirmations of the reliability of Scripture. Uh, Dr. Weaver, I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for the work that you do, not only at Dallas, but through your podcast. And listeners, if you're interested in uh, in listening to either of these podcasts, you can find them on uh, really wherever podcasts are found. Look up Faith Affirming Finds uh, and Bible and Theology Matters and uh, give those a listen. Dr. Weaver, thanks again for being on the Gesher Podcast. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. It's been a joy. You've been listening to Gesher, a ministry outreach production of FOI Equip, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. To learn more, visit foiequip.org. And for more information about Ty, visit foi.org forward slash Perry. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.